Hey folks, a quick note about this episode with Christian and Joe. Uh, Christian's internet cut out about halfway through, but I think we had a good interview, so we didn't want to scrap this. And you'll you'll see why that's significant uh, as you listen to this episode. You know, a, uh, in a world where people throw a lo- away a lot of things, we should be fixers. And that's really kind of the theme of this episode. And so for Christian, uh, if you want to follow her on the Rebel Rally... She is Team uh, 124, called Team Wonder On, and it is Renee Vento as the co-driver in Christian Renee, and they are driving a G-Wagon that is powered by biodiesel of spent chocolate scrap, which is pretty cool, and we're going to discuss that on this episode. So you can also follow them on Instagram at, uh, let's see here, it is... wonder collective at wonder collective on instagram and her website is wonderinstitute.com so it's wonder w-n sorry w-u-n-d-e-r institute all one word dot com not uh w-o it's a w-n like wonder uh and uh it's pretty cool so i hope you enjoy this episode and we had a lot of fun making it and hopefully maybe we can connect with them after the uh, event is over. Oh, and by the way, of course, the Team Rebel Rally is, uh, it goes off on October 8th through the 17th of 2020. So it's, uh, this episode should come out like the week before. And uh, yeah, you can follow all that stuff on social media. It's, there's some cool stuff going on. Like I know Mitsubishi is sponsoring a team that's running a P, uh, PHEV. Uh, so it's a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle in the crossover category. So there's a lot of cool stuff going on. All right. I'll let you get back to the episode. Welcome to episode 199 of Auto Off Topic. And welcome back, Brad. And we have guests tonight, Christian Renee and Joe Gocher. Christian is a competitor in the Rebel Rally, which is an eight-day off-road navigational rally for women. We've talked about the Rebel Rally before uh, in the Team Free Range Dames episode. Uh, the teams are given limited support and rely on manual navigation, meaning no GPS, to plot their course and find the checkpoints. It's a really cool event. Uh, Joe is uh, the engineer slash evil genius who helped Christian build uh, her G-Wagon for the competition. And uh, it's got some super cool mods, and we're going to learn about that on this uh, episode. Some stuff so what, we wouldn't even expect to ever talk about on this episode is going to be talked about in this episode. So, yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty stoked on that. So, so we'll start hello, right away. Yeah. Hello, Christian. And hello, Joe. It's nice to uh, meet you informally via remote podcasting. Yeah. Hello. Stoked to be here. Thank you. So I guess we'll get right into it. Um, for Christian, I, I want to say, I want to know what drew you to the rebel rally and have you run it before and did you have any prior off-road or motorsport experience before that um cool i i've always loved cars and vehicles i think i probably first fell in love with cars when i saw um if looks could kill and um he's a high school guy who uh who gets mistook for a CIA, CIA agent and um, gets gifted a Lotus Esprit. And I just became obsessed with cars because I was like, that's a pretty rad way to live. Um, and uh, um, yeah, I've, I've always been into automotive. Um, definitely came from a racing and automotive family. Um, and I have done the Rebel. Um, this will be my second year. Um, and they actually introduced themselves to me, um, because I happen to work in chocolate and it turns out that rebels love to eat chocolate. Um, and they came to us as a, a seeking partnership, um, in which case it happens to be my dream adventure. So not only do they get chocolate, but, um, I certainly registered and, uh, decided I was going to compete. If looks could kill, is a pretty deep cut to start the podcast with. That's not <laughs> a very famous, popular movie. That was a Richard uh, Grieco film movie, wasn't it? 
I, nobody knows what happened to that dude, but yeah, yeah. it was. Wow, that's a. I, I don't think I've heard of that movie in 15, 20 years at least. You're going to go back and watch it, aren't you? I, like, probably I ain't got anything else to do. I don't remember The Lotus of Spring being in any movies other than James Bond and Pretty Women, so I'm going to have to. Uh, I'll, I'll have to watch that one again. <laughs> well, I now now own that Lotus Esprit, so that's how impactful it was. That's really cool. What year Lotus Esprit is it to go way up? Topic? It's a 94. I think the last year that they made the original um, Lotus Esprit Twin Turbo, it's been so it's refurbished a bit. It is probably the most fun car I've ever driven. That's really cool. I don't know anybody who's ever owned Lotus Esprit. I know a lot of people that have it as their... Like, this is kind of a dream car, but also I'm afraid of it car, and they haven't actually bought it. So we've, we've talked about them in the past because they're they're kind of scary if you don't know them because of the reputation that precedes them. But having talked to a couple people who, you know, outside of my closed circle of friends who have owned them, they've been pretty happy with the cars. So I, uh, I wonder sometimes if it's really as bad as it's made out to be on the internet. I think that any supercar is probably as bad as it's made out to be on the internet. Okay. <laughs> you only live once. Live yeah. on the edge. <laughs> but no, it's it's amazing. And even, you know, God, it's what, 30 years old? And it's, it's a head turner. Um, and it's fun. It really is. Love those pop-up lights. And yes, yeah, like- as Pretty Woman explained, it's like uh, riding on rails. Yeah, they're, they're kind of a, a timeless design, and mm-hmm. the, the evolution of it really never made it look bad. Like, the, the Pantera was designed about the same time as the Lotus Esprit was, and mm-hmm. by the end of the Pantera's run, it had so many stick-on doodads, and the Lamborghini Countach is the same way, that the, the Lotus always just kind of, it seemed to evolve a little better than those did. It never looked like it was a, the original design with stick-on parts, but I, I dig those cars a lot. That's really cool to see that you have one. I, uh, they're, they're always in the back of my mind as maybe someday we could pick one up and play with it. But one day or day one? Well, day one's passed, so it'll be one day. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, Joe, Joe, what's what's your background with cars? How did you get into uh, mechanics, modifying vehicles, building race trucks, dare I say? Ooh-wee. Well, always <laughs> been a passion of mine. Uh, I think I kind of alluded to this before, you know what? At heart, we're all just a bunch of poor boys stuck fixing our stuff. So, um, you know, growing up on dirt bikes and racing motocross, kind of got the, the go fast bug and, you know, got to fix it yourself. Otherwise, you don't race that weekend. And, uh, you know, naturally, when you get to be about driving age, you, you need to get four wheels. So kind of tr- morphed into that. And uh, I was hooked. So really got into off-roading at an early age and uh, really have a passion for uh, Big trucks, diesel stuff, um, things that go off-road, things that go places where they shouldn't, and more importantly, things that go together that possibly shouldn't have gotten together in the first place just to make something really kind of cool, unique, and different. So that's kind of my background. Um, you know, I've been in the industry since, uh, golly, my early 20s, and I started this company, Alliance Auto Care, about 11 years ago um, from, you know, just out of my pocket and morphed into what it is today. And... Uh, Kind of got into some cool stuff and uh, just kept growing from there. So, so what adventure. part of the country? What part of the country did you grow up in? That off-roading was something you did young. Uh, you know, I, two parts. So I grew up in Kentucky. You know, hence you know the old poor boy from the backwoods. And uh, you know, the other half of my young adulthood was in Colorado, which really fostered that. I mean, we live at the base of all the Austin Trail networks, so we can just get out and go off-roading whenever we want. So two different genres of off-road, if you will. You know, one's definitely backwoods and sticks and mud, and the other one's definitely rocks and more open plains. But, you know, take your pick. That's awesome. Andrew and I talk a lot about off-roading and how we got into it a lot later in life because it wasn't something that was really, you know, growing up 20 miles north of Boston, Massachusetts, we don't exactly have, you know, trails at our back door. And trails that do exist are generally on private land and, it's not something that's as easily accessible in the Northeast as it is in other places of the country. So it's always interesting to hear where people come from that get into off-road stuff because yeah, it's you know, so it's very interesting. Along. 
It's one of those things that, you know, we've determined almost everyone I've spoken with, it, it's definitely something that has not been passed down from your parents. That's the common denominator. <laughs> if anything that discourages, always someone else or there's some scenario that gets you hooked. And it's kind of interesting how that transpires. Yeah, well, there's definitely no way for to be uh, developed into off-roading by my parents. My, my, pa- my father <laughs> is a car guy. Andrew's father is a car guy, but neither of them were off-road guys. So it's definitely... A- interesting thing and we, we're just kind of scratching the surface of it really we've only started doing off-road stuff ourselves the past couple of years i mean oh, cool. my moving to arizona might uh be a a certain push in that direction because now i do have access to trails and and public land and places to go off-road and do things so uh it's definitely definitely a new a new world of cars for both of us we both grew up doing sports car things and absolutely maybe, you know not only not only that, it's just a huge change in skill set. I mean, you take your what you know on the street and you kind of have to reverse it a lot of ways for what's going on off-road. So, you know, kudos to anyone that goes out and tries it and, more importantly, anyone that tackles it and just owns it. Well, I, I think a lot of the big thing is, is the older you get, the more you kind of want to slow down a little bit. And uh, going from sport to off-road is slowing down. Uh, well, Andrew's got, what am I, three years older than you, Andrew? So I'll, yeah. be, 40, I'll be 40 this year and Andrew's three years younger than me, so... Blobity blah blah blah. The older you get, <laughs> called out. What nonsense! Like Such excuses. No yeah, excuses. Have fourth cars, and I still have motorcycles, so we're still, you know. God bless. Do more. We can't. The older talk you about get, it. the bigger mistakes podcast. you can make. That's true. <laughs> Less costly they are, right? Yeah. So it would be easy to buy a new four x four, like a Forerunner, and outfit it with like a few things, and have a super capable rig. I want to know why did you pick a 30 year old Mercedes G wagon as your base vehicle to start with? I love the G. Um, and I come from a family of fixers. Um, we don't throw out, we don't buy new. Um, we repair and I mean, it sounds goofy, but really try to honor the, the craftsmanship. Um, and I have a G as my, my daily, um, and it's super capable. And I noticed the same thing with, um, you know, Range Rover as with G-Wagon. They have these status symbols attached to them and people think you're drinking champagne in the back seats. And yet they're incredibly capable just as, quote, a base model. Um, I mean, they're designed to be the best. Um, and to actually put that into action is truly impressive, no matter what you put it up against. Um, and I, so I, yeah, I really love the G wagon. Um, and I knew I needed a diesel for a particular project that I was embarking on. Um, and G wagon has it, or Mercedes Benz has it. Um, it just never came to the U.S. So um, I spent about six months looking for an imported. Um, diesel G and it happened to be 30 years old, but that's cool because I have the team and I have the interest in, in reconditioning it. So what year exactly is the truck? She's a 92. Okay. And is it a a four door or a two door? It's a four door. Okay. Um, she arrived as a manual transmission, which I was pretty stoked on. Um, and after modification, it, it comes. It comes with. It comes with. Ninety-two. They had a three hundred and fifty GD with a six hundred and three engine, which had an output of about one hundred and thirty-five horsepower. That's pathetic. Um, especially living in Colorado, we're a mile above sea level, and um, a lot of our culture takes us into the mountains up to 12,000 feet. And I'm sorry, but 134 horsepower is not going to get you anywhere. That becomes 70 up high. (laughs) Oh my Lord. It's yeah. You're driving the freeway in second gear. I don't think so. Um, So we switched out, (laughs) switched out engines um, and worked to make her a little bit more, more powerful. Which um, which engine did you switch it to? Um, minor evolution up to a six oh six. Um, one of the goals is to run her on um, biofuel, and the six oh six has a pre combustion chamber, so 
you know that you're getting, um, I mean, you're really maximizing your, your fuel, um, and certainly your power output with that, that free combustion. And it's going to eat through just about anything. Um, and you can tune it and throw on a turbo as uh, Joe has done for the second time, maybe the third time in the past year, uh, this past week. Um, and it's, it's been a fun experiment. Um, probably more fun for him than it has been for me. Um, I just get to see the aftermath. Um, but you know, we hope to, to develop, to deliver some actual, um, performance, not just, not just reliability. So is it, is it still a manual? Oh, so thank you. Um, yeah. Upping the power from 135, I think, I think our first incarnation, and it's not a joke, we've been through at least three incarnations on this vehicle, um, had a power output of maybe 450, and oh. we had a custom clutch made, um, and this was right before rally, like we were rushing, and I, I'm i sitting at home watching YouTube videos on how to drive um, you know, a fifth wheeler, like a, a semi-truck, um, because the custom clutch was just so complex. I mean, it was, it was a race clutch and you're supposed to go to rally and go rock climbing, um, with this, with this clutch, basically we never even made it to the starting line. So, um, yeah, when you're in rally and one of your primary goals is to manually navigate, that means with a map and compass where you're trying to get from, get to 20 hidden checkpoints in a day, um, using just your wit and, um, <laughs> and a needle in a pool of water. Um, we decided to go with an automatic, um, just one, take one thing off the, off the plate of things to manage. That's right. one less failure point too, with the clutch there being a, a yeah. slipping issue with that kind of power, especially. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, but so here's the interesting thing. So you've modified the engine, um, you're making more power, but we were told that you were running biofuels. So we're kind of curious why, what led to the decision to run biofuel? And then I, there's something special about your biofuel. So I guess we can get into that. Um, so I, I mentioned the rebel reaching out to us. Um, mm -hmm. We're a chocolate company. My family owns, owns a chocolate company <laughs> um, and they really like, chocolate. Um, but it turns out that despite being, um, really zero waste and having a team of mechanics, because we really are a fixing culture. Um, we don't wait around for the tech to come and manage a machine. We get to work and repair immediately what needs to be taken care of. Um, but we throw away um, a heck of a lot of chocolate scrap each year. Um, I mean, just for instance, we clean our equipment with cocoa butter um, as an emulsifier. It goes, it gets pumped through machines and pulls out um, off flavors, burnt flavors, um, inclusion flavors that you don't want to be transferred to um, your chocolate. And um, it gets tossed. And um, most of we have, I think, six mechanics on staff and all but one of them has an automotive background. Um, the one comes from, uh, uh, I think he was a jet engine um, mechanic, but we've, you know, we're, we're inclined to think automotively. And um, we said, what if we made fuel out of the waste. Um, and yeah, my husband put forth this idea who's owns the company. Um, and I thought that was brilliant. I just loved it. I was like, yeah, let's make biofuel. Heck yes. This sounds fabulous. And Oh, by the way, I'm going to sign up for that all women's rally that we partner with. And Oh, by the way, I just bought this truck that we're going to outfit to um, run on this biofuel. Um, and so, yeah, a couple of kitchen dates later, um, we, 
made biofuel in mason jars and decided to scale it. Um, and so last year I did. I did run eight days, 1,600 miles, um, running not on a B100. Um, I was in a Volkswagen Turig, uh, and I ran B20 to B40, depending on the weather. Um, and it was awesome. It was incredible. The mileage and the performance was breathtaking. So what what kind of, I guess I'm not familiar with biofuels, especially. Um, you're running the entire Rebel Rally on biofuel, correct? The vehicle is tuned to run specifically on this biofuel? Yep. What is the refilling kind of situation? Do you bring your own fuel along with you? I do. Um, so, I mean, in most race circuits, you uh, the you hire a fuel company. They truck in tankers, um, and most of the time, you're running a a, a normal gasoline. Um, if you're running, I, I, gosh, um, most of the support vehicles are diesel, so they always have um, diesel on hand, and I just brought my own fuel with me. Uh, I traded or I, I uh, met up with the tanker team uh, beforehand and gave them my my barrels. <laughs> they put it in the back of their pickup and it just traveled with the with the tanker. And then I'd fill up each night from my own barrels. Okay. So you're basically, you're supplying the supplier to supply you. Yep. Right. Yep. I like it. <laughs> so it's so DIY. Yeah, I love it. So yeah. and everything's made in house at your chocolate factory. It is. Wow. That's that's pretty so is- that, that that sounds creepy. We have a separate building we call the boneyard. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's where we keep like the spare equipment, machines that haven't that aren't active, um, spare parts, and there happens to be uh, a um, fuel making like you know, pad in there. Um, it's not actually in the factory. <laughs> yeah, I, would, I, would, I wouldn't assume that your local health code would. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Yeah, we partitioned it off with a shower curtain. No, we don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, we'll talk about my operation. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't said the name of the chocolate company yet, so there's no issues right here. So <laughs> all out of the way first, and then you can plug your chocolate company. So no problem. Oh, God. Uh, that's that's really cool. Like Andrew said, the DIY aspect of that is really neat, and the supplying your supplier to supply you the whole time is kind of a an interesting factor. Nobody else has to think about. Most people just go and say, "Hey, this is what I need. Bring it to me." It's just a whole another level of having to prep this, and it's one more thing that you have to have your own. It's it's your responsibility to make sure it's right, and that just seems that's that's impressive to say the least. Thank so you. I- I only know like cursory information about biofuel. I know a lot of people make it out of like they'll go to their local fast food joints and grab the oil that's left over. Yep. So uh, from watching Food Network, I get the cocoa butter is pretty oily. Is that where you're getting? Um, it's you, like, uh, yeah, it's it? no. Um, <laughs> that's cool. Um, so no, biofuel <laughs> is um pretty old school. Um, like literally the diesel engine was designed to, um, run on a plant-based fuel, um, because the French wanted something they could send to, uh, the colonies in Africa that they didn't have to supply, um, refined oil for, um, that essentially could be self-sufficient and could run on a vegetable-based product. So uh, the most common biofuel is soybean. Okay. Um, soy. So you have two qualms about why biofuel isn't a really a viable option um, for for fuel needs. One is that yeah, it's pri- primarily soybean is um, the primary source, and if you're going to take food crop and turn it into fuel. Um, there's real complaint about why are there starving people, but you're going to make fuel. I don't know if that was phrased, um, coherently, but yeah, why would you, why would you take a potential food product when people are starving and turn it into fuel when you have 
gasoline, when you have petrol diesel. Um, people are up in arms about it. The other thing is that soybean compared to petrol diesel is calorically inferior, which means you're losing power. So you could be running a quote unquote green fuel, um, but the power output is um, it's less than if you're running what you get out of the green handle at the pump. Yeah, it's um, like people run ethanol or mm-hmm. full, full ethanol in their vehicle. Yeah, you have to run more of it. You can make more power because it burns cooler, but you you need to use like three times a lot more. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so there's always been trade-offs in this sort of um, yeah green movement um, towards biofuel as a as a mainstream product. Um, but it turns out that cocoa butter is um, incredibly calorically dense, um, far more so than, and, and I haven't actually done the math, I wish that I could give you the exact number, than, than petrol diesel. Um, and we're talking about diverting waste from a landfill. We're not talking about a food product that um, you know, choosing fuel over feeding a population. Um, we're, we're literally di- diverting uh, just from this one factory. Potentially, we could divert 40,000 kilos annually. Um, in the United States, my rough math estimates that we could divert if, if we were actually uh, taking all the cocoa butter that goes to landfill, 4 million kilos annually, um, which is a heck of a lot of fuel. Um, and just initial tests we ran, um, I mean, again, I ran last year on a B20 to a B40, so 20 to 40% biofuel to, um, petrol diesel and my power, my, my, my efficiency increased exponentially. Um, you think about, the, I, again, I wish I knew my numbers and I'm sorry, I didn't look them up beforehand, but, um, you estimate that the V10 Turig diesel runs like 25 to 28 miles per gallon. Um, and then you take it off road and your average speed is 25 miles an hour. And maybe you're, um, trending 20 miles per gallon. I was averaging for the entire rally, um, 45 to 60 miles per gallon. Wow. Yeah. That is very impressive being off road. Um, it is. Thank you. Um, and I, I mean, that's the same output as a, as a Porsche Cayenne, uh, hybrid, um, and no lithium and no children were harmed in the mining of the lithium for this vehicle or its fuel. Um, sorry, that's a little political. Um, so yeah, the last week running a B100 of our newly engineered fuel, um, we I think we easily saw a 20% increase in power, and it was a small batch, like 30 miles um, in an unclean system that hadn't been prepped for for bio, um, and the emissions was greatly reduced. Um, the average statistically. Uh, soybean reduces your emissions by 75%. I mean, it's, it's really quite impressive, but um, because of the caloric value of cocoa and its ability to burn so cleanly, I actually think, um, and I'll, I'll say it out loud. I think we could muster a 90% um, increase or uh, improvement in emissions. Which is something that's, incredible for modern standards to improve something that's already pretty clean nowadays compared to what it used to mm-hmm. be to make it that yeah. much cleaner is is very impressive and you, you touched right you know touched on real quickly right there the the fact that you're going to take food away from starving children or not sending you know children to work in the mines to farm lithium that's always been the problem with any kind of alternative fuel right now is no matter what alternative we have there's always a negative to it somewhere else it seems like you know, the batteries, you have the lithium and you have the mining of it and the disposal of it. And, you know, diesel is obviously diesel. Whatever you discuss the problems with diesel, mm-hmm. 
um, and any of these things, even they talk about wind power and harnessing wind power and harnessing the, sun, the solar power and everything needs batteries. And there's always a negative to the positive and there's not really an answer yet. So it's neat to have. Everything's a very complex system, right? Yeah, there's, there's, no, there's no one way to fix everything. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. creates something new and say, we're, we're all better. Everything is good. Everything is just a constant evolution. And I think that this biodiesel is something that I've always kind of had on the purview of my, my brain, but I haven't actually, you know, dived quite into, I've never owned a diesel that was old enough that I was willing to do this kind of conversion or the work for it. I ideally drive a diesel Volkswagen, which is, you know, either good or bad, depending on how you look at it. Um, but I've never really gone beyond, Hey, this is different than the gas cars I'm used to. Maybe we could try to do something else with it. And it's neat that this is something that a DIY person could essentially take on themselves and create their own clean energy. They can do their own, you know, making their carbon footprint smaller, which is something that's such a huge thing in in the world right now is trying to be as responsible as we can without making it too inconvenient on ourselves. So it's really neat to hear about this stuff. And, you know, I always have this, this thought in my brain that maybe there's a way that someday we'll make synthetic fuel that will burn cleaner and we won't have to rely on crude oil anymore. And, you know, these, these kinds of things are just different directions of that. And it's, it's neat to hear that it works this efficiently and this well. Thank you. Um, and I, I think it's very, very valid what you say when you, yeah, can you shift your perspective to find new solutions instead of imagining that, um, I don't know if electric is the future. I think it's part of the future. But um, I think there are a lot of options out there, and um, all it takes is that that shift in in perception to identify them. And and my personal view on that same question is electric is certainly part of the future, and the electric gas hybrid I think is probably what's going to be most popular for this foreseeable future. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I wish that people would start, and maybe they are. I don't. I'm not again educated enough on this to know that. Maybe it's time to start, instead of thinking of ways to eliminate the internal combustion engine, maybe try to find ways to make something that burns cleaner and is synthetic and replaceable. And who knows? That's always been my kind of my thought on the process. But I'm just one guy who works in car insurance and doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there are already so many vehicles on the road, so many engines already made. What can you do with what already exists? And yeah. I'd like the United States has made pretty good strides, but um, up until you know three years ago, the average age for a car to be junked was um, uh, nine years. Um, and how honest to goodness, what are you really doing with a junked car? How much of it we say it gets recycled, but give me a break. Yeah, Most of it ends up in a pit. small percentage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, to to breathe new life into machines that um, were really built to endure um, if you cared for them correctly and you modernize them a little. Um, it's a, it's a really cool possibility. Unfortunately, a lot of that uh, nine year lifespan is going to have to be retaught because that's part of the whole consumerist I need the newest and greatest all the time thing is, is part of that as well. It's not necessarily the vehicle's fault. That's mm-hmm. more so. No, it's a, part of our a, culture. A, a mindset yeah. of our culture. Exactly. But must have new, which yeah. I get. Yeah. But as, as car enthusiasts, as motorsports enthusiasts, and as people who do care about the environment, you always kind of struggle with this internal mm-hmm. strife of this thing that I love doing is not exactly great for the longevity of the planet. So what can we do to make it, to make it better? And you you make it cool, right? You make it, you make it as cool as the new release of the iPhone. So working on that here, I I like that. And that's what, you know, in in a lesser, a lesser scale, Andrew and I are, you know, vintage car enthusiasts. We own vintage cars and we keep them running and we keep them on the road and we try to make them interesting and get more people involved with it. And, I think that the vintage car is a way to save the environment in its own little way because we're not buying new cars all the time. But that's, again, that's a whole other discussion for a whole other day. I just, it all kind of ties back to this, you're making your own fuel. And that's at the, at the, the crux of the conversation, that's the coolest part. You're making your own fuel and 
you can make it for as long as you guys are making chocolate. I, you know, the world the world could run out of crude oil tomorrow, and you can drive this Mercedes anywhere you want. And that's that's wild to me. That's that's cool. Thanks. Okay, so right here we lost Christian's audio. She lives in a rural area, and the internet cut out. Unfortunately, we couldn't reconnect uh, to finish out the episode, but I think we got a good chunk of uh, an interview with her. So from here on out, we'll let Joe finish it out. And thank you, Christian, for being on, and thanks for listening. So I think I have a question for Joe, um, being the mechanic slash evil genius what kind of what, what's the the basic of the conversion required to run a vehicle on biodiesel uh you know it's kind of interesting you know the biggest thing is uh the fuel pump and all the lines they transfer the physical fuel from the tank to the actual engine i mean once it gets inside the injection pump and to the injectors i mean that's all brass crush washers there's there's no real rubber there to worry about so, you know, the number one thing we did is gutted all of the original Mercedes stuff. So we don't have the, the old mechanical lift pump anymore. We don't have, you know, any of the old hardened plastic, you know, fuel lines that are designed to operate at like three PSI, you know, on a good day. And we just threw it all in the garbage. It was garbage to begin with. We basically upgraded to almost a class eight truck style um, fuel system that is able to take the fuel from the tank and clean it, filter it, and, you know, separate the water, everything. I mean, kind of with the dual filter setup, it's not only a particular, but a water separation yeah. system. And then it pumps it to the injection pump at a preset pressure that we um, we set and go to town. Um, so that's been the number one thing we've had to work for. Um, aside from that, you know, we're also conscious of the temperature variations that uh, this truck's going to endure and the temperature limica- limitations of the biofuel. And I think, I don't know if Christian touched on it, no, she didn't touch on it yet, but um, the fuel that she has is cold stable down to an extremely low, low temperature. So in essence, she just made my job that much easier. Um, but really it's just getting a heat system to the fuel pumps, the fuel line and a and the tank for those nights, you know, when it gets down to 20 degrees, 15 degrees, just want to make sure we don't have a, a big waxy clump of um, mold in the bottom of the tank. We want to get that stuff out of there. So that has been, that's been one of the big things. Uh, you know, the other aspect is, you know, we say reliability and serviceability. So, you know, if she's out in the desert or wherever and she gets in a bind where, you know, sand gets in there, she gets a funky batch of fuel and it, it starts uh, crystallizing or doing something goofy. Uh, you know, she has the ability just to spin the filters off and uh, spin on a new set and get back on the road. Um, you know, fortunately, the system doesn't burn a whole lot of it. It's super efficient. So, you know, in, in theory, she should be able to go thousands and thousands of miles before she depletes the capacity of the filter. So, so that's just the fuel system. Yeah. <laughs> we start with, with the fuel system is what we we're most curious about initially, because I wanted to know what the difference was between, you know, a standard diesel system and a biofuel diesel system because i mean i guess you can't really call it diesel because it's not diesel anymore it's a totally separate system it's, it's, a, it's a diesel right. engine name only it doesn't there's, there's nothing diesel about biofuel it's totally different you know i've spent the past you know better part of half a decade daily driving a diesel vehicle whether it be my volkswagen or um, a pickup truck and uh one of the biggest issues i always had living formerly living in new england of course was temperature and you had to make mm-hmm. sure that, that was nice and warm, or you had to run additives in your fuel to keep it from freezing. Um, yep, precisely. that's something that you have to do with the bio as well. You need to. You said pretty cold, but what's what's pretty cold? What's the the limit of? Uh, you know, so I think she's down to about twenty degrees, which is which is phenomenal. I mean, that's groundbreaking for this type of product. And, yeah, it's honestly not much know, different than a regular standard diesel. Exactly, exactly. You know, something like that, we can get away with a really light duty uh, style heater system uh, to keep this thing up and running. Really, we want to stay away from those additives for a couple of reasons. Mainly, you know, it, it's not diesel. It's not fuel that you're putting in there. It's, it's basically uh, something to, you know, break up all the, the substructure of the biofuel. And that stuff doesn't burn. It just comes out as particulate through the exhaust. So we want to keep that out of the equation. And it robs power and all that other fun stuff. So, you know, in an imperfect world, you're going to need it. Um, 
in our hypothetical perfect scenario, we're going to try to go without that and just use more of an organic substance, uh, which is heat and uh, a fuel thermostat and so forth. So that's that's really where we're going with it. And you know, starting with this type of truck, you know, we have the benefit where, uh, like I said, we just have some some nasty fuel lines we got rid of, and everything else is uh, steel. So we can just roll from there. Awesome. I, I look forward to seeing the results in this thing running for sure. That's yeah, definitely. I mean, the other week our uh, our test, we actually ran it in a one of our shop trucks just because her truck was in the middle of surgery, and uh, you know we we pumped the tank dry and um, just ran B100 straight through it. And I got to say, it was amazing the results. Typically, the truck br- runs a little dirty. It's a, you know it's a third gen Dodge Cummins, common rail, and uh, you know it runs a little dirty. It's a big heavy truck, and we basically we pumped the tank dry and just ran this stuff to about two and a half gallons through it just straight, and it was amazing to see 100 percent clear emissions through the tailpipe you know with your foot to the floor it's like oh my gosh we never get this so it was pretty cool i was stoked that's that's really neat have you guys ever experienced any other kind of biofuel or just this x chocolate um well <laughs> back in my day i've played around with a couple different options and stuff um like i said i'm friends with a bunch of other dumb rednecks and uh you know Old hot water here is you, you get a bunch of fryer grease and try to make stuff up until a French fry clogs up your injector, and that's no fun. Um, <laughs> so to put it to put give you your answer, yes, I've played around with it in the past. Um, however, it's been dismal results, uh, and I think a lot of part of it's just been the lack of engineering and lack of uh, kind of seeing it through to the end. This is the first time I've actually firsthand experienced driven a vehicle which has fuel that's been clean, it's been engineered, and it works. So that's, that's been the big game changer. Awesome. Andrew, you have a question? Oh, no. All right. Well, you work on that. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll quiz Joe some more on the truck. Um, what, what are the modifications are you making to this truck, Joe, to, to make okay. a 30 year old G G wagon viable for this event? Because I know the last time we spoke to people who ran the event, they ran in a brand new Toyota. So. Yep. Yeah. Golly, where do we start? Um, I guess we'll we'll stick with the drive thing for now. So, like she said, it, it had that uh had a little 603 motor in there with like 134 horsepower. I mean, you could pull a noodle out of a cat's ass with that thing. The, the truck itself is the same that came on the U.S. model like um, sedans, correct? Yeah. 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 They. They refer to them as the old rod benders. Um, they're the motors that you hear in like the old Mercedes, and you wonder, is there any oil in that damn thing? I yeah, mean, my, it, father, my father used to have an SD um, 300 SD. So it's probably that same basic engine they, in there. Or, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They were they were t- total turds from the get go. Anyway, that came out. Uh, the 606 is what we put in there, and it's it's kind of a cool motor. You know, it's uh, it's known as the diesel JZ. Um, it it uses the same basic um, block architecture and crank as like the M104. Uh, which came out right before the 2JZ that Toyota made. So it's an incredibly well-built motor that's designed to rev and spin. It's a 24-valve head, flows great, um, but it's still running a mechanical pump, which gives you that that flexibility with tunability. So that went into the truck. Um, and like she said, the first iteration was 400 horse. Um, when I came on board, the motor was in it, but it was a manual transmission. And so we kind of played around with that a little bit. And um, I saw right after the last Revell, and it was just, it didn't go so hot. Um, and, you know, that's where we had our first discussion of, you know, let's let's get rid of this manual that's not working and go with an automatic. Uh, a couple of reasons for that were, you know, A, it's so much easier to drive. When you've got that much power and you're focusing off-road, you don't want to be modulating the clutch or you don't want to be worrying about what gear you're in or, or any of that kind of garbage. You just want to be able to step on the accelerator and go. The other reason it was having such a hard issue is the only transmission that would physically bolt up to that motor came out of a C-Class. And Mm -hmm. it was only designed to take, uh, give or take 200 and some odd horse. And it it just wasn't up to the task. And the other part of that equation is it had a super small clutch. So she said, yeah, she had to have one custom made. It was a dual disc that was made to handle the power, but at the expense of drivability. So that, it just had to go. The other issue is that torque too through a smaller transmission probably isn't good. Yeah, yeah, totally. Torque more than horsepower for sure. Yeah, we actually, uh, when we got the truck, we took it out on test drive, and on our test drive, it completely grenaded the transmission. So that's how close it was to the breaking point. So, so we actually, 
we went with a 722.6. So it's it's uh, kind of a widely known, it's a five-speed automatic, fully electronically controlled with the lock-up torque converter. And, you know, it came in the E-Class from the mid-late 90s on. And, you know, Chrysler kind of bought the rights to it. And they used it in the, everything all the way to like the Jeep Grand Cherokees, Chrysler mm -hmm. 300s. I think they kept it in line all the way to like 2012, somewhere in that ballpark. So it's a very widely adaptable unit. And, you know, we, we basically just bought a core and we went through it, had it built with all the Kevlar clutches and all the Gucci stuff. Uh, put it in and we're running it via a standalone controller that we sourced out of Denmark. And it works pretty darn good. So no real complaints or issues with it yet. So, so that's what we did with the drivetrain. Uh, you know, and aside from that, like she, she mentioned, we're kind of on our uh, third iteration of the turbocharger. Because um, what we realized initially when the motor is stuck in there, uh, you know, you think in rally, off-road, you want tons of power and torque. So they built a right around 450 horse. And so we ran a big turbo, big fuel pump, and, you know, it made the power. But golly, it took forever to get there. It just would, you'd sit there and it'd, it'd be like dial-up, waiting for it to spool and come on the come on the pipe. So I started downsizing the turbo to the point now we're running a smaller uh, Borg Warner EFR turbo. It's a full ceramic ball bearing unit. And uh, hopefully that'll kind of get us where we need to be with drivability and power and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, you would think you'd want something that spins a little faster being off-road too because you're not going to be running high revs. Yeah. You just want it to make, it's, make torque down low. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's really interesting. This also ties in with how clean the motor is and emissions too because, you know, there's two, two schools of thought. One is, you know, you can always put a big turbo, big fuel, and get tons of power at the expense of emissions. You get a ton of particulate out the exhaust. It rolls coal. It's, it's not really fun to drive on the road. And the other thing that, that you got to keep in mind is this is a heavy truck. Uh, I don't know if she mentioned it. It's a 6,000-pound rig going down the road. It's not just a G-Wagon, but it's full off-road tires. It's running BFG KM3s, um, full Hutchison beadlocks, uh, plus two spares, roof rack, full kit. It's loaded. It squats. So, you know, it, it doesn't need the big turbo. It needs a small turbo to light quickly and get up to two to 300 horsepower immediately. And it can maintain that so much easier than it can trying to wrap the 4,000 RPM just to squeak that extra power. So that's that's been the big hurdle for us to overcome. And the other thing we're fighting is, you know, like she said, we're a mile above sea level. So there's just not a whole lot of oxygen up, oxygen up here. So you have to work it pretty hard to, to get there. Yeah, I've, I've driven uh, over the past in Colorado before. It's definitely an interesting experience. Once, <laughs> once, you, once you press the top there, it's... I don't know, was it 12,000 feet or something like that? And it's Yeah. Once you crest the top and you go down, it's like, whew, thank God. You're going to yeah, relax. I hope the brakes go, are up. Big, yeah, big truck breaks the whole way down, unfortunately. But <laughs> totally. that's definitely a whole different experience. You're up that high in a vehicle. And, and it was my daily driven car. And I you know, put 30,000 miles on it and very experienced how it feels. And it was a very different very different thing climbing that hill, that's for sure. Not something I want to yeah. do every day. So, I mean, yeah, I, and that's I, the I've other thing. Driven some vehicles at elevation before, but that was a different different experience altogether. And that was with a turbo diesel. So, <laughs> oh, oh man, yeah, it's interesting. So this is kind of our proving ground, and if we can make it work here, we can make it work anywhere. Because the other thing you got to contend with is heat. Um, you know, no one ever talks about that. Is you, you can make all the power in the world, but if you can't keep it cool, you're hosed. So you know, first things first. Out came the mechanical fan, and then went a full electric unit. And that thing mm -hmm. kind of runs all the time. Uh, we have a giant intercooler that runs across the bottom right behind a giant skid plate. So it's got airflow there, separate tranny coolers, oil coolers. I mean, everything's run into zone braided lines. I mean, it's kind of complex and it's been a, that's been a morphing process also. It was like I said, when we got the truck, it just had the old fan clutch with just a spinning fan and no shroud. And it was like, man, this thing, it would overheat two times around the block and be back at square one. So now we've got it to the point though, where um, about a month ago, we took it out on a, full day of trail bashing and it was when i say trail bashing it was definitely a level trails and you know it's kind of nice riding passenger with christian and she just kind of walks around all the jeep guys and they just look and their jaws drop like what the hell is that but the truck didn't get hot it rock crawled over all the boulders uh you know didn't do anything weird the other part is we had air conditioning all the time first time that's actually come online wire it was about 98 degrees outside so I think we're we're almost there with that. We're pretty happy with how that's coming along. That's neat. What's cool about the G wagon is even though the truck is thirty years old, I mean, 
they still made them until what last year and they started in yeah. the early 70s so you have yeah yeah two, a lot of development for that vehicle like <laughs> there's been a totally man over the years there's no it was developed as a military vehicle so it's not you know it's not commercial it's not commercial grade it's it's a heavier duty vehicle so it's definitely something people don't realize when they see them in rap videos that they're actually super capable off-road machines and oh exactly so yeah it's funny. If, you know they they uh they came out in 1979 and they use the exact same frame body architecture everything you can actually bolt the fenders from a 79 onto a 2018 uh, they share all the same mounting points and locations so the interesting thing is, is you, you know they they stuck everything from six hundreds v8s v12s and these damn things and you know hell if mercedes can make them fit so can we so yeah, all about just putting the right combination of parts together there's a few of them running around the phoenix area that are earlier you know, late seventies, two door convertibles that have bolted on, you know, the 2018 bodywork to make them look like something that they're not. So it's definitely something I'm used to seeing. It's definitely very common. I'm not really common, but there's a few of them around here more than there should be. So people yeah. trying, <laughs> trying to pretend they have something they're not basically, but nobody off-roads them. Don't really see that. It's funny. Andrew and yeah. I were talking about our experience in off-roading, not being, you know, long-term. It's a fairly new thing to us in the past I don't know, five or six years. Um, and we're Mitsubishi people at heart. We were into eclipses and starions and that stuff as kids. And we've kind of really developed that as our own little niche. And the Montero is the vehicle that we're most familiar with as far as off-roading. So when you talk about Jeep guys looking at you like, what are you doing in that thing? Like we have the same kind <laughs> of thing with, a Jeep, with Montero because, you know, Monteros are also kind of, they're developed the same time as the G-Wagon. You know, they all yep, competed yep, totally. in the, you know, the, the Paris, the car, the Monteros, and the G-Wagon were actually competitors. Uh, and uh, they were developed for third world countries and sold to Americans to just drive them all with. So they're certainly um, much more capable than they're, they're given credit for. So there's some similarities there that will tie this into some of our listeners who are uh, from, from our Montero friends. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, well, it's kind of cool. Like you know, all these you guys, like, man, what's in that? Like, oh, you know, f you know, factory locking differentials from day one, and they're like, what? It's like, hell yep. yeah, man. These things were stacked. They're ready to go. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. kind of wild. A, 90, a ninety-nine Montero that's got a factory air locker in it, which Jeep guys are like, it, it does what now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, even Toyota yeah. guys. <laughs> yeah, even Toyota guys did the same thing. So <laughs> suspension-wise, anything done at the truck, or is it mostly factory? And, uh, well, it's interesting. Most of it is factory. However, we're running different springs and shocks. So we're running a progressive rate uh, spring that lifts the truck up about two and a half, three inches in an ideal world. But like I said, this thing is a porker. It's fat. So realistically, it rides about an inch and a half higher than what it should. Um, so it, it's got more suspension droop than anything. Shocks, though, we're running a set of King um, remote reservoir adjustable uh, shocks. Those are the big two and a half inch uh, guys. And, uh, you know, they're pretty stout. We've run them on a couple other trucks and we've been pretty happy with them. So we're, we're sticking with what we know works. Um, and it's, they're just tough to beat. You know, the other thing is we can always rebuild them. So we're going king all the way around with the hydraulics. You know, obviously we've got braided lines everywhere. Now the back axles one though, we had to switch. What's interesting about the G is these things came with this front, the drum brakes rear all the way through 1997. After that, they switched to disc brakes. Naturally this truck's in 92. So the rear end got swapped over for a newer one. Had to match ring opinion, but now we have four wheel discs and uh, yeah, it works pretty good. So leave it alone. If it's not broke, just keep rocking it. Yeah. Again, they were built to run in some pretty gnarly conditions. So I think the stock yeah. stuff is uh, pretty, pretty well suited. Just get some good tires and some good armor. And yeah, totally. You know, they're, it's interesting. The axles are pretty well set up. It's a lot like the Toyota Burfield style axle. The same thing as in the Land Rovers too, you know, with the closed knuckle design, it's got that funky scupper ring and it's got the cb shaft on the inside they work pretty darn good and that's why you run these things through the desert and the water all in the same day and not to worry about a whole bunch of crap getting in there so pretty pretty happy with the reliability on that on that one because that's the last thing we want to have to mess with out in the field so we're doing that and then uh for wheels and tires we're running a full set of hutchison uh bead locks i don't know if you've ever dealt with those but they only weigh between like 808,000 pounds each, if you've ever had to deal with one. <laughs> They're definitely a hernia-inducing. But um, we paired those with the BFG KM3s. It's running on a set of, it, it's about 34-inch tall tires right now. They're running their metric, whatever it translates to, 305, 75, 16. Um, but they're heavy. But 
we can run them down to about five PSI and they just kind of crawl over stuff and get us where we need to go. So she's insistent on carrying six tires. So, you know, four on the truck and two spares. I'm thinking, good God, if you pop one of these, you got bigger issues to worry about. Yeah, just trying to change but, it too. It's probably not going to be fun <laughs> in the field. Oh my God. That, I mean, you have to switch out the, the wheel bolts to race car studs and just to get the thing to bolt up right. But it's a riot, man. We've had to, I think I personally, my best time is, about two hours to mount six of them in the shop. That's that does not sound fun. <laughs> it's a workout, man. I've always I've always yeah. joked that the, re the reason we never got into trucks, other than not being around a place where they made sense, was because I don't like working on things that have eight lug wheels. <laughs> I just want to put four <laughs> lugs on and call it a day. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's still a five lug wheel, but the thing you got to account for is when you put the wheels together, you've got golly like thirty bolts around the outside putting the outer ring on. Yep, yep. And you got to torque them all down and yada yada. So, each so your gonna, is a... yeah. So what's gonna be your role on the days of the rally? Are you are you going to be there as support or are you sending them uh, off in the truck on their own or what's what's the plan? So that's kind of interesting. Um it's a closed rally, so there's no spectators. Uh there is mechanic support, but not for a specific team. So what that means is, you know. Christian or co-driver, they get, they show up, they get to the starting line and they set off. Um, there are mechanics on staff, you know, if you're to throw a belt or, you know, throw a brake pad or something goofy like that. There's, there's people that'll help out and get you squared away from that perspective. And, um, but there's, there's no set, like there's, there's not going to be a, a Christian mechanic and there's not going to be a, a Toyota mechanic over here. So, um, I've committed to, I will get the truck to the rally and I will be there just in case. Um, and I've also coordinated with the rally, the, the lady that's putting the rally on said, I'd, I'd love to volunteer to be a mechanic on staff. I understand the potential ramifications of conflict of interest, but I'm here if you'd like it. So right. I may come on as just a, a generic uh, mechanic, just be part of the team, so to speak. And we'll just have to wait and see. So, Well, maybe they let you work on other people's trucks, but not hers. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's probably how it'll come down. I'll, yeah. You know, no, my luck, I'll get stuck working on a Mitsubishi Pajero or something, right? <laughs> hey, just, just give us a call. We'll give you all the advice you need. No. Nah, I'm pretty sure good, pretty good, good on duct tape and zip ties. <laughs> yeah, that's about what we need. Yeah, we'll keep, keep them running. Right, it right. sounds like uh, Kristen did email me back. Sounds like she lost it in it for some reason. So, Well, that's She's not trying good. trying to get back in. Yeah. yeah. Well, that stinks, but it so, happens. so Joe, uh, a couple things we can close out with probably. Um, okay. Where can we follow along with this build? What's Christian's uh, Instagram or Facebook group or is it something where we can follow this build or it's kind of, kind of private. Yeah, and... so, so I have it, I have little bits and pieces of it on my Facebook and Instagram. It's uh, allianceautocare.com is my website. Um, Alliance Auto Care on Facebook and then uh, golly, Instagram, I think is at Alliance Auto Loveland. So, uh, and then well, Christian has it on hers. Okay. I think it's, I wonder, it's at wonder. Yeah. Wonder collective, I believe on Instagram, but um, yeah, if you go to what W U N D E R dot film, um, that's where she has, the video, um, the truck, uh, the latest videos on there. You see a little bit about me because I'm yakking on that thing too. Um, you could see the inside of my shop a little bit, um, but that that gets changed up kind of daily. In fact, the uh, the first shot of it is on our last four wheeling trip, so it's kind of cool. So she keeps so up with there. I think Christian's one... not here. We'll, we'll promote that on our on our site, I guess, if we can get back a hold of her later on. Um, okay. You do run Alliance Auto Care in Loveland, Colorado. Um, is that a general service shop or? It's a more of a specialty shop. We primarily specialize in uh, European. Um, we do a lot of Mercedes, Porsche, uh, Land Rover, all that kind of fun stuff. A um, little bit of fab work, a little bit of custom stuff. Um, but Kelly, we do a crap load of G-Wagon stuff. I guess I'll leave it at that. We usually right. have anywhere from, I don't know, 10 to 12 of these things in our shop at any given time. So if someone was looking for a foreign car service in Loveland, Colorado, you really got to, really got to call. We are the ones that get called. In fact, we get all of these G-Wagons 
that we have here, Christians is the only one that's local. Every single one gets shipped in from all over the United States. Wow. That's awesome. It's good, it's good to be known yeah. as the G-Wagon guy. That's, that's neat. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. You know, she mentioned that, you know, you can't get the diesel ones in the United States. Uh, last year, actually, we successfully imported two 2018 uh, diesel Gs into the U.S. And got them registered and plated? Registered and completed. They're kind wow. of spendy, though. They're, they're not your everyday. Anyway. Well, they're... describing a G-Wagon as spendy means it's probably really spendy because, in general, <laughs> they're pretty spendy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're kind of cool. They're kind of wild. So it, it's quite the, the stepping stone from a poor Kentucky boy to work on cool stuff like this. Yeah, it's funny because you keep bringing up that, um, you know, that that redneck background, but yet you're a Mercedes and Porsche mechanic. So, it's, oh, dude, uh, I love it. I mean, my personal ride, <laughs> I, I, I drive a 1980 911. It's an oh, ex nice. race car that I converted back to street use. I still keep the cage in, it's still got the seats, and it's loud. It's unreal. So, at 80, so, would that be an SC yet? Yep, it's an SC. That's cool. SC, it's brown, it's uglier than shit, but it is cool. That's that's what makes the era. The brown brown cars make the late seventies, early eighties cars. That's that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I just want to know, like, who the hell went to the dealership and said, you know what? Out of all the colors here, give me the brown one. Well, it was the nineteen seventies. It was it was very trendy. The same guy who probably bought an avocado fridge ten years earlier. You know. Yeah. So you know you can't you can't look at it through the eyes of twenty twenty. You got to look at it through the eyes of nineteen eighty. Uh, they're just so. dead on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> I, I happen to like brown cars. I've had. A brown car myself, which is even uh, a worse brown car because it was a Dodge Colt, but uh, not, a, not a Porsche in any means. Yeah, I, I just can't get away get away from him. I found him on Bring a Trailer, and my wife is like, "Oh man, that's what you've been looking for." I'm like, "Really, a brown car?" She's like, ah, "I already bought it." <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Listen, yeah. I, I I like brown cars, specifically like brown metallic cars. I think the Porsche is probably a solid brown, no metallic, right? No, this is the, uh, they call it like bronze metallic. It was a uh, 1980, if you look up the uh, 1980 White Sox edition. Okay. One of those. That's, it, that's awesome. Yeah, if you hop on Bring a Trailer, you'll see it. I think I bought it February, year before last. You know, just quickly the history. So it's one of the race cars. It's got 311 on the side. It okay. kept delivery and everything. It's kind of a cool car. That's very cool. That's very, cool. Very, very neat daily driver. But it's very Colorado. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. So yeah, we do that. Um, other than that, you know, obviously we all have G wagons. We all drive them, and uh, it just comes to how can we cut them up and make them cool. So it kind of goes against the uh, the cultural norm, so to speak. Well, so your, your Porsche yeah. does too. Actually, you know, it's a outlaw kind of thing. There, you have a race car you're driving on the street, and you have G wagons that you cut up and go off road with. That's that's kind of kind of fits together there, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. One of the uh, one of my other clients, he shipped his truck out here in his old 320G. He saw Christians in the back of the shop. And he saw that. I was like, man, I want that same motor, same tranny in mind with the lift. So it, we just got the truck back from paint. And it's getting ready to go into surgery. That's cool. Uh, these kinds of race car builds certainly are good advertising. That's for sure. So yeah, that's, yeah that's it, it works out pretty nicely. We tend to stay pretty quiet about it, though, in all honesty. I mean, word of mouth has really been our, our king. Um, and I mean, for instance, right now we're scheduling for January for this kind of stuff. We're pretty far out. So awesome. coming along. In fact, uh, January, we're looking to do our first pickup truck conversion on one of these. I actually saw my first six by six just yesterday in traffic. Oh, really? Yeah. It was right, cool. right outside of, uh, Scottsdale, which is obviously, uh, that a, makes uh, sense. A highfalutin zip code out here. <laughs> so I, yeah. I know those are quite spendy vehicles. I had never seen one in person before. It only, you know, I heard those them on the internet. Yeah, it was. Cool. It's a large vehicle. It was very, very tall. Had portal axles, six of them, and was was pretty ridiculous. Yeah, that's so. that's cubic dollar territory right there. <laughs> yeah, I, I I I just bought a house, and I think I probably paid a fourth of what he's into that truck for. So <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely yeah, not my territory. A, if you've got a cool million to spend, that's that's one way to do it. Yeah, that's so. so exactly a fourth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the pickup truck ones are going to be interesting. There's currently one in the U.S. that sits in California, and the guy brought it in from the Netherlands. And they're so rare. No one in the U.S. has done it yet. So I have another guy in California who's got a California legal truck. It's an early 2000 model, and uh, he just he's dying for it. So I've been pushing him off for the last year, and finally we set a date of January. He's going to ship it in, and we're going to go to town so we're we're setting up our frame jigs and getting ready to do a frame stretch back half cut and uh, we're going to use the bed from a early 460 wolf chassis to make it all come together 
I don't know what that is, but I'll be Googling that and figuring it out because that sounds cool. <laughs> figure, figure like the most girly little two-door pickup truck G-Wagon you can think of and using one of those little pickup beds. They're uh, kind of pitiful. That sounds like what I would want to actually own. Yeah, but when you put them together, they look kind of cool. Huh. I dig it. That's really cool. Well, Joe, it was awesome to have you on. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, we, we lost Christian, but that's okay. We'll uh, see if we can catch back up with her and maybe get a few more statements from her and just tack them on at the end here. But uh, yeah, cool. Th- thanks, thanks for saving us from her internet and keeping the interview going. Uh, no worries. Awesome knowledge. Um, super encouraged about this biodiesel stuff. And yeah. Oh, I dude, that I'd stuff like is to, incredible. Yeah, I'd like to learn more and experience myself some that someday that has something with that. And, I don't know. It's interesting. It's neat. It's neat to yeah. think about being totally self-sufficient and not having to rely on mm-hmm. Sunoco. So, yep. that's, yeah, totally. Yeah. It's good stuff. I like it. I was happy. We ran it through our shop truck, and it was like, dude, this is this is yeah. good stuff. Keep making it. Excellent. All right. Well, again, people can find you at Alliance Auto Care, which is allianceautocare.com. Correct. And I can search that out on the Instagram and on Facebook. Yes. Excellent. Any parting thoughts? It's been great. Stay tuned. Good things are going to come. Excellent. Cool. Thank thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. You can follow us on Facebook, Auto Off Topic Podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Auto Off Topic. Follow us on Instagram, Auto Off Topic. Follow me, Race and Anger, on Instagram and Brad, TSI, SS350. Keep cars analog and aim for the roses. (laughs) 